Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In case you haven't heard, I have another crypto podcast called Unconfirmed. It's shorter, newsier, and comes out Fridays. If you haven't yet, go subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Also, find out what I think are the top stories in crypto by signing up for my weekly newsletter at unchainedpodcast.com. Crypto.com. Get their app and buy crypto at true cost with no fees or markups. Get a metal MCO Visa card with up to 5% back on all your spending. Want more? Download the Crypto.com app today. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. It has the tightest security, deep liquidity, and a great fee structure with no minimum or hidden fees. Whether you're looking for a simple fiat on-ramp or futures trading, Kraken is the place for you. Cypher Trace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. My guest today is Emily Parker, co-founder of Longhash. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much, Laura. I'm really excited to be here. You are the co-founder of Longhash, which people may uh, be familiar with for its data journalism, but there are actually two parts to the company. So can you describe what Longhash does? Sure. So the most general purpose of Longhash is to serve as a gateway to Asia, and both parts of the company try to achieve that goal. So um, on the incubator side, we help blockchain projects reach Asian markets, and we also try to help Asian projects go global. So we have offices all over the Asian region. And then um, we also have a data media platform, as you mentioned, in which we use data to help investors understand blockchain and cryptocurrency with an emphasis on Asian markets. And what's your background? Like, how did you come to the blockchain space and then end up founding Longhash, which, you know, obviously you, you sound American, which I believe you are, uh, <laughs> yes, which, you know, has, has a focus <laughs> on Asia. <laughs> okay, very, very reasonable question to ask. So I have been interested in China for a very long time. I started studying Chinese in, in high school. And um, basically, I've done a lot of different things in, in my career. Um, I started out in journalism. I worked at the Wall Street Journal and also at the New York Times. Um, but I also was served in the US government as a a policy advisor uh, at the U.S. State Department. Um, and then this is my second startup. So I've done a lot of different things, but I think the one consistent trend in my career has been Asia and technology. So when I was at the Wall Street Journal in, in Hong Kong, I actually wrote a column looking at how the, the impact of the internet in China specifically. And then I went on to write a book looking at how the internet was changing lives in, in China, Cuba, and Russia. And I've just been going back and forth to Asia for, for many, many years. And I've also spent a lot of time in in Japan as well. And so cryptocurrency kind of got on my radar when I saw how big it was in China and how it was blowing up in China. Um, and um, this kind of caught my interest because it reminded me a lot of the internet because it was like this decentralized technology that was clearly making the Chinese government nervous. And um, one thing I had learned from looking at the internet in China for many years is that it's very hard to shut it down. You know, you can censor it, you can restrict it, but there's always going to be information that gets through. And so my instinct was that cryptocurrency would be similar. And you could even argue that the stakes were even higher because, you know, the internet is the spread of information and cryptocurrency is the spread of, of money, sometimes huge volumes of money. So I got very interested in cryptocurrency in China when I saw A, how big it was becoming there and B, when, you know, I saw that the Chinese government was trying to rein it in and I kind of wanted to see what would happen. And that's that was sort of my en my entry into the crypto world was looking at it from the Chinese perspective. And what year was that? 
That was like um, 2017. So um, it was right, right before, right around the time when China was signaling that they were going to be um, cracking down on, on cryptocurrency. Oh, interesting. And then how did you have the idea to kind of build the business this way, you know, uh, half incubator and half uh, journalist or media outlet? So, you know, I went to China and I was kind of really, I met a lot of the people in the crypto world there. I um, met the people that would become my my co-founders, my partners. And, you know, initially the idea behind Longhash was, was more of a straight data media platform. You know, this idea that there's so much data in blockchain. Everyone always talks about that, right? Like that, how the data is transparent and you can see all this data, but it's not very easy to make sense of it. And it's not very easy to know like which data you should be paying attention to. So our initial idea was, okay, let's do um, like not just a media platform, sort of hybrid, like a data media platform, because we're not a media platform like, like Coindesk, for example. Um, you know, we, we, most of our stories, uh, use data analysis, but we're not a pure data platform either. So basically what we're trying to do is take, you know, data and tell stories around it and, and help people understand that data. So that was kind of the initial idea. And the other thing we really wanted to do was, you know, have a real, a really global platform. You know, my partners were in Asia, Asia, which I'm sure we'll get to later is a huge part of the crypto world. It's a, you know, some people would say it's the heart of the crypto world. And um, we wanted to kind of increase coverage of, of, of those markets. So, you know, and in Longhash, our data Data, uh, media platform publishes in English, Chinese, and Japanese, and we also really try to cover those those markets. And for long for the uh, the data side, what types of data do you typically utilize for your stories? So we use quite a wide variety, but we use a lot of on-chain data. We use price data. Um, you know, sometimes, I mean, sometimes we'll do more creative things where we'll look at like the number of meetups in a certain country to, to, you know, gauge interest there. We'll look at social media data. You know, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty wide, wide variety. Um, but our main focus, whatever data we use is to really try to tell a story around it and not just like put that data out there and, and have people have to make sense of it for themselves. Yeah, I was kind of poking around and uh, like I thought some of these were very interesting. Like there was a story that showed the Bitcoin price against the different time zones, uh, Eastern time in the US, Pacific time. And then um, I actually I forget the last one, but it was an Asian like maybe Beijing time or something like that. And uh, the conclusion when you looked at kind of the different graphs was that basically, at least for the last few months, the U.S. crypto market has been more enthusiastic than the Chinese one. Um, and then some others were like, you know, what is the price premium on Coinbase versus OKCoin or mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. um, tracking the Bitcoin price against like Baidu searches for Bitcoin. So, um, yeah, 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 these are really interesting Thank you. I'm glad you think. Yeah, we use it. We do a very wide, you know, we really try to do a wide variety of analysis. Um, you know, we do things like we have a stable coin health index where we try to like rate the health of stable coins using various factors. Um, again, you know, we try to look at the level of social media interest in China in cryptocurrency, for example. So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty broad. Um, and, uh, but, but our, our main, our main point is to just try to make these stories understandable. And are there any types of data about the blockchain and crypto space that you find are actually still difficult to get despite everybody kind of touting how transparent it all is? Oh, yeah. So many. I mean, well, for, first of all, the, yeah, the, 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 the first point is that everyone says how transparent it is, but how many people actually know how to make sense of blockchain data, right? I mean, everyone's like, <laughs> oh, you can see everything on the blockchain. But it's not like the average person can just go and see everything on the blockchain and take a story away from that, right? A. But B, yeah, there are a lot of missing pieces to the data. Um, you know, particularly, I mean, I think China is a case in point because when China cracked down on crypto exchanges – after that, you know, in late 2017, um, a lot of it, China became a real black box, you know, and I think for those of us who spend a lot of time in Asia, we know that there's a lot happening in China. We know that China has active trade, but it's really hard to find those numbers. You know, it's really hard to like prove that. And so I think China is a really good example of like, there's just not a lot of like specific data about like what exactly is going on there. I mean, in general, I think geographical data can be very difficult. I mean, a lot of people point to 
to data from like local bitcoins, for example, but that's obviously not conclusive. And like part of the problem is like a lot of these exchanges, it's like unclear where they're actually based and unclear like who the majority of their users are. So it, it can be very difficult. I'm personally very interested in geographical data and it can be it can be difficult to find. Yeah, well, probably part of that is because since you are, you know, you do have this geographical focus and then within Asia itself, there's so much variety. I could imagine you trying to sort of parse the signals country by country. So just to kind of set the terms here, how do you define Asia, at least for your site or or like what areas of Asia are you focused on? Yes, a very important distinction, because yes, you say Asian, obviously Asia is is different countries have different rules. And not only that, the rules are changing constantly. It's a very dynamic space. So I would say that the countries that we are really kind of the most heavily focused on would probably be um, China and Japan and also Singapore. We do have a presence in in Hong Kong as well. um, But I'd say China, Japan and Singapore, at least. And those are the three places that I personally, I think, know, know the best. And and is that why you decided to focus on those areas simply because that was your knowledge base? Um, not exactly. I think, you know, those three markets make a lot of sense. I mean, China, you know, is there is a very important market. Well, I think it will continue to be regardless of the regulatory obstacles. Japan, just on kind of like the retail trading side on the retail investing side is still huge. Um, and Singapore, I mean, you're just hearing more and more about how Singapore is kind of this like, paradise of crypto and that they have friendly regulations. I think Singapore is a place that I just hear talked about a lot. So I think those three places, you know, are, they do make a lot of sense strategically. Obviously, another important country is Korea. Um, We don't really have a presence there yet. Um, I think hopefully, eventually we will. But that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of the missing piece of of that puzzle. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say, because I even noticed, I think one of the articles on your site showed the various trading pairs, and that was the third largest. It was USD, yeah. then, yeah, the Japanese yen, and then Korean won. So, yes, Korea's Korea's no doubt important. So, very broadly, how would you characterize the differences between the crypto markets in the West, or or maybe even in particular in the US versus Asia? Yes. So it's, it's a really, um, tough question. So I think recently, so I just interviewed, um, SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce, who I know you interviewed her as well. Um, it was a great interview. And she, she was visiting Asia, um, for various reasons. She had various things that she was doing there. But one of the things she was doing, uh, in Singapore, at least, was trying to, you know, see the lay of the land and meet blockchain projects and learn about the crypto space there. And so I was talking to her specifically about this question, you know, how she sees kind of the U.S. crypto landscape as compared to the, you know, Asian crypto landscape. And she was like pretty direct in saying that, you know, a lot of projects I'm talking to are avoiding the US and, um, you know, Singapore, for example, seems to have a more open approach to regulation. And so, you know, that's something that I feel like you kind of hear a lot these days, you know, in the Asian crypto world that the US is seen as, you know, either very strict, or I think more important, very confusing. I think that's kind of and that's what the commissioner was saying, is that it's not so much a matter of strictness, it's that the US is just confusing, you know, like, and cryptocurrency it's confusing enough, right? <laughs> like it's already confusing. And then you had like kind of a layer of, you know, I mean, with the US, for example, you know, you have different regulatory bodies, you know, who that are involved in crypto, A. Then you have different states that have different, you know, rules on money transmission. So we did one of the visualizations we did at Longhash some time ago was um, we did a map of the United States looking at different approaches towards money transmission and, you know, kind of separating them by color. And it was like this rainbow map, right? You just couldn't, you know, it d- didn't make any sense. Um, and then, and then, you know, so you have the different regulatory bodies and then you have this kind of rainbow map. And then you also have, you know, what is the security? What is the utility? You have the Howey test that like, you know, th- there's just a lot about the U.S. environment that I think seems like you, you kind of need to be a securities lawyer to, to understand. And, the, you know, the commissioner at the SEC was basically acknowledging, uh, acknowledging this and saying that, like, we just don't have enough clarity. And I feel like if someone at the SEC is saying this, you know, um, how is yeah. how is just a blockchain project going to figure it out? And I think there's this fear. I mean, the U.S. is obviously, you know, a very important market. Um, and, and I think a lot of people want to be in the U.S., but there's this fear that like you could break a rule without even knowing that you're breaking it, you know, and, and who who's going to want to take that risk? Right. 
Well, so for that reason, I mean, are you seeing that there's then a lot of movement the other way? Because the way you've been phrasing this, it's a little bit like, oh, Asian projects maybe are scared to go there. But then are you seeing projects where, you know, maybe the teams are from the U.S., but then they go to Asia? Yeah. I mean, again, anecdotally, you know, I don't, it, it's, it's, this isn't something, I don't know how big this, this phenomenon is, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you definitely hear about companies that are, you know, registering in Singapore. Um, you know, ICOs, we ran a story about how ICOs are, are leaving the United States, you know, like th- there's, there is some data on this, right? So Elementus, um, that does really good work in data. They, they just, they did, um, they released a report where last year uh, in August, for the first time, August of 2018, Singapore ICOs, um, the number of Singapore ICOs surpassed those of the United States, which is kind of remarkable, you know, given that, like, oh. you comparing the size of Singapore and the United States, you know. So <laughs> so I think there's, you know, there's a there's a bunch of data points like that, you know, where you're just kind of seeing this this move, you know, and, 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 and new exchanges that are kind of opening up in Asia. And, yeah, and projects that are, you know, just they just – they just see, um, you know, places like Singapore as as more welcoming and, and, and more clear. And I don't just to say, like, I don't think it has to be this way. Like, I don't think it will necessarily always be this way. But that is kind of the feeling, you know, right now. And out of curiosity, do you think that some of that might be like, you know, obviously, ICOs have been banned in China. So is some of that demand in Singapore um, Chinese people who somehow are able to participate in Singapore? Do you see what I'm sure. asking? Yeah, of course. Sure. So that's like kind of a, the really fascinating thing about Asia is that it's so dynamic. And, you know, even in, you know, the two years or so where I've been watching Asia very closely, there's been so many changes and it's almost like whack-a-mole, you know, like where, where something gets, there's some, some country clamps down and then all the activity goes somewhere else. And I feel like I've been watching this kind of spread throughout the region. Like, you know, when China cracked down on ICOs or when China sort of cracked down on crypto, the, uh, a lot of activity went to Japan and, and Korea, but then Japan and Korea have sent mixed signals. You know, it was it, it, Japan, for example, in early 2018 became a lot more strict on cryptocurrency. And then I think at that point, Singapore started looking more friendly. So, so yeah, it has, it has been moving around the region for sure. And I think a, a lot of people who are kind of leaving jurisdictions that are not friendly to go to places like Singapore that are seen as more friendly. Huh. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I guess it would be like if, you know, I don't I don't think Europe has like uh, a super unified policy, but if the different European countries had different policies, then you might see movement. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask was that in a previous episode, Eric Meltzer and Davi Wan of Primitive Ventures were saying that they thought the decentralized networks tended to be uh, ha- have more kind of like Western founders, I guess, and that there were more um, like really good projects around infrastructure, like around trading and exchanges and stuff that were coming out of Asia. What do you think of that take? Well, there definitely are projects that, you know, have kind of like a background in Asia. Um I mean, yeah, I think it's, I think it's true. Again, I don't know how to quantify that to say like what percentage of these projects are, you know, because it is very decentralized and sometimes like a country, you know, sometimes a project will have Asian founders, but then they'll be incorporated somewhere else, you know, but you look at, for example, um, I mean, you look at, you look at Binance, you look at, um, uh, Neo, you know, these are some, these are some really kind of important players. I mean, you look at, you look at Tron. I don't know, you know, if people have different opinions about Tron, but you know, these are, these are, these are kind of interesting, um, projects that have, you know, or exchanges that have, have come, you know, come from Asia. Right. Okay. Well, so let's kind of dive into the different markets within Asia. And I know that China is, uh, you know, a particular, market that you have, um, you know, special knowledge in. So broadly, how would you describe uh, the industry and the markets there? In China? So I think, I think it's, I would describe it as full of contradictions and very different from how it appears <laughs> would probably be the easiest way to describe it. So basically, you know, what happened in China, just short history of Chinese crypto markets is that, you know, trade was booming. Um, you know, there was a uh, China, Bitcoin trade in China was huge. And then ICOs were also exploding. And then the Chinese authorities got very nervous and they kind of clamped down on Chinese crypto exchanges, specifically looking at, you know, trading Chinese currency directly for uh, cryptocurrency. And then they also banned ICOs. And so 
ever since that point, you know, and then at that time, I think, you know, the, the price reacted very strongly, the Bitcoin price reacted, but it's, you know, since came back. Um, and I think um, China is still a vibrant place for, for, for cryptocurrency. It's just a little bit harder to see. So China, for example, still has a pretty active OTC market. Um, so even though, you know, so there, you can still trade Chinese currency for cryptocurrency. You just have to do it via an OTC platform. Um, there are still definitely like projects coming out of China. Um, so there are definitely, you know, startups in China. And also um, the other kind of, I don't know if it's a contradiction, but distinction is that, you know, the Chinese government may be very wary of cryptocurrency, but they like blockchain. They like blockchain technology. So there's kind of these two things going on where, you know, you kind of have the authorities sending positive signals about blockchain, but negative signals about about cryptocurrency. But I think the important, the other important thing to, to say here is that cryptocurrency, like Bitcoin is not illegal in China, you know, per se. Um, it's China cracked down on some very specific aspects of, of, of the industry. And I think, you know, for example, you know, ICOs. And at the time when China cracked down on ICOs, frankly, almost everybody I spoke to in the Chinese crypto world supported that crackdown because they felt that ICOs in China were kind of getting out of control. There were a lot of frauds and there were a lot of scams and that it was it was bad for the industry. And so I think that that actually, you know, I, I've, I've heard a lot of Chinese um, crypto enthusiasts say that that wasn't actually the wrong decision. Yeah, all the way back when the ban happened, I did an episode with two founders. It was uh, Da Hong Fei and Patrick, I'm just blanking on his last name. Anyway, they were from Neo and, and Quantum, and um, they were giving some examples of some of the really, really um, <laughs> kind of uh, eyebrow raising ICOs. And one of them was like, a business around mooncakes. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I remember being like, hmm, okay. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so yeah, it obviously uh, was getting super, super, super frothy over there. But then, it, you know, when you were saying that, like, people can still trade OTC and stuff, what does that look like? It, like, here, OTC, I feel like generally means people who are spending more money where uh, they are, you know, moving larger amounts of money where they might be worried about moving the price on an exchange or something. Um, and then obviously, you have maybe, I guess, kind of a local Bitcoins model. But like, what does OTC look like there? So OTC looks like, you know, basically an online platform that sort of matches buyers and sellers, you know, so and and and, and that's where you can trade um, Chinese currency directly for uh, cryptocurrency. And then what but what and then what a lot of what people what some people in China do is then they will get uh, USDT uh, tether and then they will use that to trade on exchanges like Binance, you know, or, or Huobi or something like that. So, you know, the first step is OTC, you know, kind of getting like using your Chinese currency there and then getting into, you know, maybe a stable coin like USDT and then using the USDT to trade on one of the larger cryptocurrency exchanges. So even if you're not able to trade directly from, from Chinese currency into um, Bitcoin, you can trade from, from USDT into Bitcoin. And that's why USDT is actually quite a big phenomenon in, in China. It has like a, a little bit of a different connotation there. Okay. Okay. This is really interesting. So basically it sounds like it is really like a local Bitcoins where it's kind of like a Craigslist style, Hey, I'm selling for this amount or I'm, you know, I want to purchase at this amount and then people get, can match with each other. And then once people get their Bitcoin, then they exchange it for USDT or so, or or I don't know how that works. Oh, when, it's more like once they get no? their USDT, then they trade it for Bitcoin. Yeah. So and like, where do yeah. they do they where do they get that? The so the so basically you can look at some of the OTC platforms as kind of like the on ramp from like you know fiat currency into cryptocurrency, um, and then once you have USDT, you can trade directly on some of these larger exchanges, you know Binance or 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 or, or whatever, if that makes sense. Oh, okay. So the initial, the OTC transaction is actually for USDT. In some cases, yes. I mean, you can, yes, it, I, you can use it for other things as well, but at least from, you know, that's the, that's the use case that I've heard from, from some people in China is that, you know, they, they will try to get USDT first and then use the USDT on the, you know, the more mainstream exchanges. Interesting. So then for like these Chinese exchanges that, you know, basically still exist, 
uh, I guess maybe they're not, not domiciled anymore in China, like Huobi and OKCoin and Binance. Do you think it's affected their volumes or it maybe sounds like it really hasn't? It's, I mean, it's so hard to know. I mean, it, it's kind of, a, it's another, it's kind of another funny thing. So Binance, for example, um, you know, was in China and, and, you know, according to CZ, they, they, they left China before the crackdown because they kind of saw the writing on the wall, you know, and then, you know, from, from then on, like Binance kind of exploded, right? And it's not, it's not, I don't know if it's necessarily like due to China or in spite of China, but, you know, these exchanges have done really well post China crackdown. I mean, maybe part of it is because they've, they were sort of forced to go global, you know? Um, but, but yeah, I mean, they, it hasn't really like, I mean, look at Binance, right? I mean, look at Binance. I mean, you, you did a great podcast with Binance, right? Like, I mean, look at their explosive growth. I mean, a lot of that happened after the crackdown, right? So it definitely didn't hurt yeah. them. Well, one thing I remember CZ saying is that, you know, with the ICO ban, the different projects were told that they had to refund investors who wanted to be refunded. But because the BNB tokens had risen, nobody wanted to give back their BNB mm-hmm. tokens. And then on top of that, the exchange had actually done a few um, token sales on the platform itself. And so then they offered to refund any investors for those tokens. And I can't remember, I think... I'll have to check this, but I th- it, it was in the single digit millions that they spent on it. And I, th- if I remember correctly, I think it was 6 million that they spent and they only raised 15 million on their ICO. So it was like kind of, you know, a big step they mm-hmm. were taking, but they felt like they should do that for their uh, c- customers. And he said that he felt like afterward, then he just like won the loyalty of all these customers. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know, it sounds like, because I guess the thing that I was curious about is like, you know, I feel like in the US, if there were some kind of ban like this, like, mm-hmm. then I don't know if you would still see a ton of entrepreneurial activity, like it might kind of attract yeah. people who were more of the outlaw type or like, mm-hmm. you know, whereas like, it's like, yeah, just I'm curious to know in China, like, are these entrepreneurs more of that type, like the kind who aren't afraid to have a brush with the law? Or are they entrepreneurs who like, are just kind of normal, you know, uh, you know, operating above board type of people who don't feel like they're going to get in trouble? Like, how, yeah, yeah. How is it affected yeah. That? I think that's a really good observation. And I think you're probably right about, about the U.S. You know, I mean, in, in terms of like, if something like this happened in the U.S., I think the reaction would be different. I mean, I think, you know, um, part of it is, again, you know, there are, China didn't ban cryptocurrency totally, right? So, so, you know, and I think people can, can kind of see that distinction, you know, like that, you know, if you're a blockchain startup, you're not necessarily doing something shady. You know, China is, is, is worried about some very specific things like using ICOs for public fundraising, right? So, so, you know, they, it's kind of clear what they're concerned about. But yeah, I mean, you could say that like they are sending a signal that this industry is, is not particularly liked. Um, but again, it's a conflicted signal because sometimes they, they don't seem to be sending that. But, but I think, you know, the larger message here is that, you know, entrepreneurs in China, I think are just kind of used to restrictions, you know, I mean, China bans a lot of things. Um, And, you know, Uh, I mean, if you look at if you look at like, look at the internet, for example, right? I mean, there are so many restrictions on the internet in China, this is like a fact. And yet, you know, what's happening in the internet in China is kind of amazing, right? I mean, it's still an amazing industry. I mean, and and in some ways, you know, like, if you look at WeChat, and just how incredible um, a product that is, you know, and, and that, that was born in a very, very, very restricted environment, you know? So, so I'm not, you know, praising Chinese restrictions, but I'm saying that I think, you know, entrepreneurs there, uh, they just, they, 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 they know how to work around them, you know, and find, um, and find kind of like the glimmers of opportunity in a very restricted environment. And I think cryptocurrency is, is very much the same way. I want to learn more about that in a moment, but first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. 
And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the privacy-enhanced compliance initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Today's episode is brought to you by Kraken. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. With all the recent exchange hacks and other troubles, you want to trade on an exchange you can trust. Kraken's focus on security is utterly amazing. Their liquidity is deep and their fee structure is great with no minimum or hidden fees. They even reward you for trading so you can make more trades for less. If you're a beginner, you will find an easy on-ramp from five fiat currencies. And if you're an advanced trader, you'll love their 5X margin and futures trading. To learn more, please go to kraken.com. That's K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Crypto.com sees the future of cryptocurrency in every wallet. Have you seen the MCO Visa card? A metal card powered by crypto, loaded with perks including up to 5% back on all your spending and unlimited airport lounge access. They pay for your Spotify and Netflix too. What's not to love? With Crypto.com, not only can you spend your crypto, but you can grow it too. Earn up to 8% per year on the most popular coins like BTC, ETH, XRP, and up to 12% per year on stablecoins like PAX or TUSD. Just a few tasks before you start receiving interest every week. Join the over 1 million others and download the Crypto.com app today. Back to my conversation with Emily Parker of Longhash. So you mentioned right before the commercial break that you see some parallels to the book that you wrote, which I'll just read out the title for people. Now I know who my comrades are, Voices from the Internet Underground. And as you mentioned, it talks about how the internet is changing life in China, Cuba, and Russia. So what parallels are you seeing to the development of crypto and the internet uh, in China? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that very question is exactly what got me interested in cryptocurrency. It was kind of like, are there parallels here? And I think there are a lot of parallels in the way that um, the internet and cryptocurrency are developing in China. I mean, I think, you know, the biggest parallel on the most macro level is that, you know, these are two examples of a decentralized technology that is very difficult for governments to control. This is true of the internet, and this is true of Bitcoin, you know, and um, I think with the internet, you know, there are a lot of opinions about the internet in China. I think right now, um, a lot of people in the West are, you know, see it in a very negative light. Oh, it's so censored. It's so restricted. Nothing is happening there. I, I don't really agree with that. I mean, I think, yes, there is a lot of censorship, but I also think that there is also a lot of innovation and there's a lot happening on the Chinese internet and there's a lot more happening there than ever would have happened in the period before the internet. And I think the internet in China has had a huge impact on just like a lot of people's individual lives. Um, so the other thing about the internet, and I've sort of been saying this for years, and I continue to say this, despite censorship, despite restrictions, it is just not possible for any government really to completely control the flow of information on the internet. It's just not, it's a decentralized phenomenon. And it's just not possible to completely shut it down. And I think that's very true of, of cryptocurrency as well. You know, and I think um, I don't think the Chinese government attempted to completely shut down cryptocurrency. But even if they had, I think it would be incredibly difficult, you know. So I think what in some ways you can also compare kind of the way that authorities look at the Internet and look at crypto. Um, I think in both cases, you know, for example, Facebook, Twitter, these are all these are all blocked in China, but you know, with a little bit of effort, you can get to them. It's not like so hard. I mean, you you have a you get a virtual private network or whatever. But I think what the goal was, was to kind of like raise the barrier to entry, right? It wasn't to like completely snuff all these things out. It was to say like, okay, it's, we're just going to make it a little bit harder for you to, 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 to do this. And the, it's, it, the same holds true for, for cryptocurrency. It's not like China was saying, we don't, you know, we want to get rid of Bitcoin entirely. They were just, they were raising the threshold. You know, they were saying like, okay, if you want to like, you need to kind of know a little more, you need to make a little bit more of an effort because it was kind of at the point where like just anybody was 
kind of getting involved in this in this market. So I think in both cases, you know, in China, if you want to go, you know, see Twitter, if you want to go trade Bitcoin, you can, um, but it's just a little bit harder. You know, you kind of have to try a, a little bit harder. So, but I think you know, it's it's just a it's a very interesting phenomenon because I think you know when China cracked down on on, on cryptocurrency or on exchanges and ICOs specifically, you know, there was kind of this feeling like, okay, is this is this is this is this the end game? You know, like Bitcoin in theory, right? Is supposed to be able to survive any kind of government repression. But China was so important. I mean, China was such an important market. And I think there were questions at the time, like, can Bitcoin survive this? You know, and not only did Bitcoin survive, I mean, it thrived, right? I mean, that was kind of like, we kind of entered a, a, a bull market, you know? Um, so, so I think that was just sort of like a, a really strong example of like, no government can, can, can kind of no government can kill Bitcoin. No one government can kill Bitcoin, you know, and I think that's true of the Internet as well. Yeah, I wonder. And, you know, I like actually, yeah, let me not ask the question that way. I was going to like ascribe some kind of um, intention to the Chinese government. But let me just ask in general, you know, obviously the PBOC, the People's Bank of China is going to be releasing its own digital currency. So what impact do you think that will have on interest in crypto in China? You know, it could go either way. I think it's a very similar conversation as to the one we're having about Libra, right? So, I mean, I think there are people who would say, oh, you know, this is bad for Bitcoin. It's going to kind of like replace it. But then, you know, there's the other side saying, well, not necessarily because you know, just ha- it might actually increase interest in cryptocurrency, increase awareness of digital currency. Um, and also, I mean, I think, and this is my personal opinion, I mean, I think this is going to be such a different animal that I don't think, you know, someone who's inclined to use Bitcoin is not going to be like easily persuaded to use this instead, you know, and you could, you could even argue that it will make the case stronger for a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, because, you know, Bitcoin is, is, is not controlled by a government. It is decentralized. It, it it has more privacy, you know. So I think it's just like a completely different beast. I wonder if it's going to drive interest in Tether in China even higher. <laughs> so you know that's interesting. So we had a, a writer um, for Longhash uh, wrote about this, and he just you know kind of mentioned it. And he had actually um, he actually had a, a different interpretation. He said, "Well, maybe it will be good because maybe it will be used instead of tether. Maybe it will be maybe that will be the on ramp. I mean, who knows? You know, but but he he seemed to think that maybe it would it would become an alternative. Um, so, but who knows, right? I mean, we there's still so much we don't know about this, and you just know. I mean, I, I really think it's very similar to Libra, right? Like how how will play out is is really anyone's guess. But I don't understand. I mean, like, if they're currently banned from trading RMB into Bitcoin, then why would I just feel like then the government's incentive to allow people to turn RMB into Tether, which people know, which the government would have to know is being used by Bitcoin that like, I just feel like the, the likelihood that they're going to allow people to do that is low. But may, but I know nothing about the Chinese government. You know way more than I do. So well, what do you I think, think it's I think it's. I mean, anybody who would have expected any of this, you know. So I really, I just really feel like it's it's anyone's guess. I think how that's going to play out is 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 just impossible to to predict. I think it's going to have a lot of interesting interesting uh, uses. But I, I it's 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 really hard to know. All right. Well, let's turn to Japan since obviously that's also a market you know really well. The uh, in Japan they suffered the largest crypto hack or crypto exchange hack of five hundred million dollars at CoinCheck back in early twenty eighteen, and then obviously yes. before that there was Mt. Gox. So, what is the atmosphere there like now? Yeah. So Japan is real. I mean, even in again like two years, I think Japan has undergone several different cycles. Um, so you know. When China initially kind of started cracking down, you know, a lot of that energy went to Japan for sure. I mean, we kind of saw that. Um, there were reports about that. I mean, Japan, it was like, this is Japan's chance, right? This is Japan is going to become the new crypto paradise. And oh, Japan was already heading in that direction. I mean, A, you know, there is a really strong, I spent a lot of time in Tokyo. There's a very strong kind of crypto community there. You know, there's Mt. Gox. They have a long history. There's, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto has a Japanese name, you know, whether, whether, <laughs> whether, whether he or she is Japanese or not is a whole other question. But, um, but yeah, there's, you know, Japan has kind of a long, a relatively long um, affiliation with, with cryptocurrency. And I think, you know, at least the impression I had, you know, in 2017 was that, you know, the Japanese policymakers were 
kind of saw cryptocurrency as an opportunity. They saw it as an opportunity because, um, you know, uh, FX trading has a, uh, is, is very strong in Japan. I think, you know, the, a lot of those people are interested in crypto. Um, I think even, you know, I think there were even some people who thought like, okay, maybe this will be good for the economy. You know, Japan had been battling, you know, deflation and economic stagnancy for a very long time. And I think there were some people who were like, hmm, maybe, you know, what do we have to lose? Like, let's try this, you know, like, let's, let's see if like, you know, yeah. this will stimulate consumption. This will, this will be kind of like a break for us. You know, I think there was a little bit of that attitude. I think also Japan, you know, was thinking like, okay, let's, this is maybe our chance to become a fintech capital to attract startups here. So that was the mood that I was picking up kind of in, 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 in 2017 of like, oh, this is kind of exciting. You know, it, it just the, the visuals, you know, you would go um, to, I think it was in Shibuya and there was this huge uh, Bitcoin ad and you'd see them on the subways. I mean, it just, it felt like, and especially compared to China, right? It was like, okay, this is, this is, this is totally different, right? You know, Japan is sending this, sig- <laughs> China is sending a signal of like, we don't like this in Japan is like putting up billboards and I mean, private companies are putting up billboards <laughs> anyway. So that was the mood. And then, as you just said, early 2018, uh, CoinCheck is hacked, largest crypto exchange hack in, in history, um, f- over $500 million. And then like basically things kind of ground to a halt. And I think this is one of those things that I don't know if that translated so clearly here in the United States. Like, I don't know if people really knew that because I felt like even after that happened, people were still kind of describing Japan as like a crypto paradise. But like after that, it definitely was not. Um, I think policymakers were super freaked out. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, exchanges had to undergo like a much more rigorous process. There were like a lot of inspections. It became very difficult to get a new coin listed in Japan. I think it was like, you know, from that hack, it was like at least 18 months, you know, for a new coin to be listed. Um, so the mood in Japan um, after that hack was was pretty dark. You know, I think like the media, which had been kind of um, – positive about cryptocurrency, you know, kind of became a lot more muted. And I think, yeah, I think just average, you know, ordinary Japanese people were more, more likely to see crypto as something that's like shady and, 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 and associated with, you know, criminal activity or, or, or hacks. So that, that, that's been the mood in Japan. And I think recently, you know, we're starting to see a little bit of a thaw. And I think, you know, I, I, I'm sensing a little bit more of optimism that like, you know, the regulators will kind of loosen up and, and that, you know, there will, there will be more activity in Japan. But yeah, that, that there was a very big, big changes in Japan over the past two years. But, you know, for example, CoinCheck, um, when, when they were hacked, they were operating under a provisional license and then they finally got like an actual license. So there, there has been some some progress and now they're, you know, one of the biggest exchanges uh, in Japan. In Japan, you know, if you look at, at least according to some data, um, if you look at um, which national currency is most traded against Bitcoin, you know, number one is the US dollar, number two is the Japanese yen. So, you know, this it's still a pretty big, important market there. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think, again, this could go either way. I mean, Japan definitely had a tightening, um, but they were also like very ahead of the curve, you know, on the regulatory front, like early on. And so the question is, is like, is this tightening just going to lead them to a better place where exchanges are more secure or are they going to kind of go overboard? And I think like I'd say the mood in Tokyo now is is, is cautiously optimistic. That's so 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 we'll see. But it, it hasn't been very friendly for the past, you know, past past year or two. And what about the entrepreneurs in Japan? Like, you know, what you were discussing is kind of around the trading and uh, the acceptance of Bitcoin, you know, as a national currency. But like, are you seeing that entrepreneurs there are kind of like interested in getting into the space and building stuff? Yeah, I think they definitely are. I mean, and this is something like, you know, our, our incubator, that's kind of what one of the things we do is try to help people get into the, you know, the Japanese um, crypto space. But, you know, I think it's, it's again, it's a bit of a, it's, it's, it's a little bit slow. I mean, I think Japan still has a little bit of like a big company culture. I think that's changing for sure. Um, but, you know, I think that that's not necessarily as much of a crypto phenomenon as like a startup phenomenon, you know, but yeah, I think you are. I mean, I think just in Japan, in Tokyo, I mean, I've been going back and forth to Japan for so many years. And I think like the crypto environment there is, 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 is vibrant. I mean, there's definitely a lot of meetups, you meet a lot of startups, you know, but I do think like that there were people who were, you know, freaked out or alarmed by the regulatory crackdown and just the difficulty, for example, of listing a coin on a Japanese exchange. So I think like over the short term, some people probably have shied away from the Japanese market, um, but, you know, they could come back. So, so yeah, I think, you know, again, cautious, cautious optimism about the Japanese market. 
And we kind of briefly touched on Singapore earlier when you were contrasting it with the regulatory climate here in the U.S. But I was curious to know, you know, as we mentioned, Singapore is kind of a small uh, a small country, somewhat small market. So, um, like, what kind of activity are you seeing there? Is it literally just people being like, hey, this is a place where we can experiment? So is it just like a lot of entrepreneurs or like who's going there and, you know, what are they doing? Well, so as we saw, like, there were definitely like a lot of ICOs there, um, definitely companies, you know, <laughs> registering there. I mean, it's it's not uncommon where you see some company where they're in some whatever country, and then you look at their, their you see that they're actually registered in Singapore, you know, you see that a lot. Um, that's been going on for a while. Um, you know, I think just, yeah, people who are kind of like, building companies, moving there, um, all sorts of activity happening. I mean, it just feels like, I mean, just even, even just on the conference level, it feels like there's, there's conferences, you know, I mean, there's blockchain conferences everywhere, every second, but in Singapore, it feels like, you know, there's constantly something happening there. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, Singapore, just when you go there, you really feel that there's like a lot of, um, a lot of momentum. And I think in general, you know, Singapore is, is kind of seen as like, you know, kind of welcoming to, to, to innovation. Um, I think the regulators in Singapore, you, you you, know, you hear them talked about as being kind of like you know relatively welcoming, relatively open. You can kind of talk to them, and 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 also compared to the United States, um, the regulations are are you described as relatively clear. At least I've heard it, them described that way by the SEC and others. So, so basically, it sounds like we might continue to see sort of the ICO trend just live on in a place like Singapore or something like that. Or the IEO trend. Yeah. yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> change, change the letters. And, you know, you did say earlier that Korea isn't like, you know, one of your uh, main areas of focus. But since you are in Asia a lot, I just wondered, you know, kind of what do you hear about uh, what's going on in Korea and what that uh, part of the crypto scene looks like? Yeah, I mean, I guess my main impression of Korea, and I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to riff on Korea only because I know sometimes these countries are so much more complicated than they look. So you, my, my, my impressions are fairly superficial. But um, my impression of Korea is just that, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a classic case of, you know, a real boom. I mean, there's like a real, you know, there's there, uh, crypto, it's a huge, it's a huge market. There was a, a, a huge boom there. Um, you know, a lot of people lost money, you know, and I think the, um, the authorities got very nervous about that, you know? So, so I think, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely that tension in Korea where, you know, the, the government is, is understandably concerned about, you know, speculation getting, getting out of control. But, um, yeah, it's, again, I don't, I don't want to kind of speculate too much about Korea because people know much more about it than I do. Yeah, I, I could imagine so many people lost money there because not only was it that so many people in Korea were buying during the uh, latter half of 2017 when every, you know the fever was at its pitch, but then on top of that, there was the kimchi premium. So they were already yeah. paying like higher than yeah. normal prices. Yeah. And I, I mean, the one thing I do remember, you know, noticing about Korea was that, you know, again, and kind of like after the sort of, you know, the Chinese crackdown, Korea was definitely sending mixed signals about like what their attitude towards cryptocurrency could be. And there was a lot of confusion there about like, you know, if these exchanges would be allowed to, 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 to thrive or not. So, you know, I think, um, I, I think there's, there's some, yeah, there was definitely a lack of clarity, at least coming from them initially. I don't know if that's still the case. And then uh, you did mention that one of your other offices is in Hong Kong. Um, uh -huh. You know, what are your observations about the crypto scene there? Yeah, it's funny. I just, um, you know, I was asking a friend the other day about it, and and uh, the um, we had a, we had a, a piece on on Long Hash about Hong Kong, um, which was basically the basic argument was, you know, Hong Kong is doing nothing on crypto regulation, and it's great. You know, basically saying Hong Kong was pretty much hands off, um, and that's been that's been great for for um, crypto there. Uh, Again, you know, what's happening in Hong Kong now is kind of overshadowed by just all these other things that are happening in Hong Kong. So, you know, I, yes. I think there's like, <laughs> so it's kind of hard to talk about anything. Like, I don't really know the status of anything in Hong Kong right now. But, um, but yeah, that was at least, you know, something that, um, that was the, that was kind of how we covered it is, is, is Hong Kong being, um, you know, pretty, pretty hands off and, and how that was, that was a good thing. I mean, obviously compared to mainland China, um, that's very, very different approach. Yeah, which is basically why I think uh, people in that country are having trouble. And um, I could, it's totally understandable uh, why maybe uh, the status of the crypto industry there is like, you know, to, like 
um, on hold right now because I think they're mm-hmm. busy doing other things, have much more important priorities. Um, yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> I actually asked a friend in Hong Kong just recently kind of, you know, oh, so what's the status of cryptocurrency there? And his attitude was kind of like, really? Like, <laughs> we have so many other concerns right now. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, well, it's sad. I really sympathize with them a lot. Um, but speaking of which, so like one of the drivers of interest in crypto here, at least in the U.S. and I think uh, some of the other uh, places in the West is this principle of decentralization, which obviously brings with it the inability for others to censor or surveil your transactions or maybe not the inability always, but uh, at least on the surveillance side. But, you know, it makes it difficult. Um, and so obviously, I mean, I, you know, I don't know, uh, a ton about it, but, you know, obviously I, I do know that the stereotype at least, or, or the common observation is that the villain, uh, you know, that has a poor track record on these issues is the Chinese government. So I was just curious to know, like, are concerns like that around decentralization or censorship or whatever, uh, or surveillance, do those drive the Chinese at all? Like, are they kind of like unhappy about having their transactions surveilled on like Alipay and stuff? You know, it's always so hard to to speak generally about what's motivating um, anyone in China, just A, because there's so many people and B, you know, there's not like a lot of like public opinion polling on this kind of thing, you know, so I can only really talk about like people I've, you know, spoken to or, or you know, kind of my, my very anecdotal impression. Um, I think, you know, look, I think there are plenty of people in China who are trading Bitcoin because they like Bitcoin and they like cryptocurrency. And I don't think they're thinking about more than that, right? I mean, I think they're just just trading it the way anybody else would trade it. But of course, like to make yeah, money, I, you mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because they, you know, to make money or to what for whatever reason, but not necessarily out of some larger mission, you know, um, I think that's true all over the world, right? Um, but, you know, yeah, I do think like, I mean, whether or not people are thinking of Bitcoin specifically as, um, you know, okay, this is like an indirect opposition to some kind of regime or, you know, I don't know if they're thinking about it that way, but I do think like Bitcoin by its very nature, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a currency that's not tied to, you know, that's not controlled by a bank, that's not controlled by the government. It is a way, it is a way of asserting your independence from the system, you know, to a certain degree. And like how much, I mean, I think some people probably think about that a lot. You know, maybe people think like, okay, my, my money is safer here, you know, cause like it's can't, my bank account can't be frozen and they can't, you know, they can't just like take it away. I mean, I think there's, you know, maybe some people that think, think that way. Again, I don't know how directly people make this connection, but I do think there is this idea that yes, like Bitcoin is, it's a form of independence. And in that sense, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a form of, yeah, it's a form of asserting your 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 autonomy from from the system, you know. And and I I do think people are I think people are very aware of that for sure. Right. I mean, I guess my question is just a little bit more like, um, you know, here I feel like one of the um, kind of main populations, I guess, is the word, or it's just yeah, am- amongst the different groups that are really interested in Bitcoin, one of the ones you know maybe that I would call out is like this libertarian type crowd where, you know, which is a little bit against, you know, government involvement. And so, but I just wondered, was that like a noticeable segment of the, you know, Bitcoin enthusiasts in um, China? They definitely exist for sure. Um, there, there, you know, there are definitely like, you know, crypto thought leaders in China who, who think this way, um, you know, that, that yes, like this is a kind of a, like this, this real, this, this technology that, yeah, I mean, again, grants them a kind of like independence from the system. And they're thinking about that in a political way, how widespread that way of thinking is, I, 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 I'm not sure, you know, but I've, I've heard it, I've definitely seen it and I've heard it. Um, it's just hard to know the scale of it. And, and, you know, if, if, if most people are thinking that way, I, I don't know. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. So then here we have Libra potentially uh, also being released. If that goes through, what impact do you think that will have on the crypto scene in Asia? And do you think it'll be competitive with the PBOC digital currency? Well, I mean, you know, it seems like China is super aware of Libra and it seems like that's part of their motivation, you know, for this digital currency, right? That they, um, you know, I think they're more concerned about Libra 
accelerating dollarization, you know, and I think that's part. So who knows, right? I mean, I think Libra, again, it's this really open question of whether Libra will kind of, you know, serve as like some sort of replacement to, to, to cryptocurrency, which I don't really think it will, or if it will actually like stimulate and accelerate interest in cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, which I think is actually sometimes I think that's, that's, that's more likely, but how will play out in Asia? I mean, it's, I mean, China's made it very clear that they have concerns about it you know, for sure. So yeah, I mean, and I think, I think that's what's in part what's, what's driving them. And uh, throughout this conversation, we've been talking about Bitcoin a lot, but obviously we have kind of all of these smart contract platforms Mm -hmm. that are, um, well, there's obviously Ethereum, which is dominant currently. And then there's a whole bunch of others that are trying to launch and maybe compete with Ethereum. And I wondered um, what your observations are about uh, interest in smart contract platforms um, in China or or elsewhere in Asia and kind of like what perceptions you have about which one of these is sort of like uh, g- gaining more interest? Yeah. So I think like, I mean, just in general, I mean, I think that's a good question about Bitcoin versus just like all, all the other, you know, coins out there. Um, you know, I think um, it definitely, there's definitely different um, projects that are, are seen differently across the region. I mean, you definitely do, you do still hear about Ethereum. I mean, interestingly, um, I mean, this is kind of a different example, but um, like, uh, I, Gavin Wood, um, who's co-founder of Ethereum and now is working on Polkadot. Um, and he's, you know, we Polkadot has done some, some work with, with Longhash and, um, Polkadot, G- Gavin has been in, uh, you know, doing a lot of outreach in, in Asia. And one of the things he said, you know, I, I saw him when he was in, um, in, in Shanghai and, and I was kind of asking him his, his impressions of, of, of Shanghai. And he was saying that, you know, this is like the Chinese sort of grassroots environment was like really, really, um, vibrant. And he seemed very impressed by kind of like the, the crypto culture that he was seeing there, you know? So it's interesting. I mean, I think like, I don't know, just in terms of other coins, I mean, you, you, yeah, I think there's, it, it depends a lot, you know, region to region. Um, you hear a lot about like XRP, for example, in, 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 in Tokyo. Um, I know it's a little different from the question you're asking, but yeah, I mean, in terms of like the, the X Bitcoin, you know, I mean, it's there, there, yeah, there's definitely, um, there's a pretty, that's also very dynamic, I think, in terms of like what coins people are looking at. I, I know that Ethereum specifically was, um, quite hot in, in Korea for a while. Um, uh, I, I think p- partly, you know, that at least was in part due to the fact that, um, you know, I think Vitalik himself had done some outreach there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a constantly, constantly shifting landscape, landscape. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, Vitalik spends a lot of time in Asia. Although maybe maybe a little bit less than he once did. So then my last question for you is just about actually the other half of the business, which we didn't really talk about a lot. But I was just curious to know more generally about the kinds of companies or projects that Longhash invests in and, you know, how separate that is from your media property. Yeah. So it is separate in the, it's so philosophically it's united in the sense that we see both as like a gateway to Asia and, you know, that's our mission is united, but I think, but technically speaking, they are separate in the sense that we don't use the media platform to promote the projects. Um, I mean, we try to keep them separate just so that the media platform has kind of like independence because otherwise it would be seen as like PR and we really try to avoid doing that. So they're separate in that sense. Um, I think, you know, so our, our, and also our, our offices are, are, you know, it is a, it's a decent, centralized organization. So for example, like Singapore and Tokyo, um, Singapore and Japan have slightly different approaches. Um, you know, in, in, in Singapore, you know, Singapore invests in and incubates early stage blockchain companies, kind of like highly technical blockchain companies, pretty wide range. Um, you know, they put money in exchange for equity and our tokens. And then Singapore also has a 12 week program for like mentorship and strategy and fundraising and, you know, most important kind of like helping them break into the Asia market. Um, Japan is a little bit different. Um, Japan, uh, also helps kind of startups with, with BD in Asia or BD in Japan specifically, but also works with larger Japanese companies um, and kind of helping like, you know, who, who are interested in blockchain and connecting them with startups who are developing uh, blockchain applications. So they're, the two offices are, are, are a little bit different. But again, the general approach is all like, you know, because Asia is, is, a, is a, I mean, you know, as, as you can see from this conversation, it's a confusing market. Um, all the, the, you know, different countries have different regulations, they have different approaches, and it can be kind of hard to go in there if you don't know what you're doing. And if you don't know kind of like who to, who to deal with. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. They sound really different. <laughs> yeah, they sound really different. Um, and again, constantly, constantly changing. And I think there's also a trust question, right? I mean, you know, which is true in crypto everywhere, right? It's like you just don't want to get involved with people who aren't trustworthy, right? Anywhere. This is true anywhere. But I think when you're going into a new market, you know, you just want to make sure you have the right partners. Yeah. Um, I actually thought of one more question. It's a fun sure. one. Um, you guys recently came out with that deck of cards that yeah. had, uh, yeah, different um, had crypto people. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And, and disclosure, you did give me a deck, which I was like so grateful for. It's super fun to flip through. Um, so how did you guys come up with that idea? And wh- like, why are you not selling those packs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we really, I mean, this might not sound true but it really it really was just for fun um you know there had been it was just like it was just kind of like a fun thing we wanted to do um it's not supposed to be that serious you know it's like it's not supposed to be like okay these are like the best people in blockchain of course it's not it's just kind of like these are sort of you know it's very subjective um just kind of like it was really it was really just for fun it's like let's just make a deck of cards you know we put a wide range of people on there some of those people are not very like that's okay which it was more like here are some people that are like making noise in the blockchain industry. Um, and here's a deck of cards <laughs> with their faces on it. And we you know we just put a lot of uh, time into kind of making them sort of, I think they look cool. And, you know, they're, it's a deck of cards. It's kind of like a collector's item. It's like a, you know, just a, it, it really, there wasn't any very like high purpose to doing it. I mean, it was just sort of like to, to just kind of capture, let's say to capture a moment in time. That's what we we're trying to do. <laughs> I love it. I love it. They're so great. Um, all right. Well, where can people learn more about you and Longhash? Well, very easy, uh, longhash.com. <laughs> that's where, that's our data media site. Um, and um, yeah, I think that is uh, a good place. And then you can also learn about, I mean, you can go, you can also go to incubator.longhash.com. So longhash.com is just for the data media platform and incubator.longhash.com is more information about the incubators. Okay, great. Thanks so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Emily and Longhash, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. If you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, which is shorter and a bit newsier, be sure to check that out. Also, find out what I think are the top crypto stories each week by signing up for my email newsletter at unchainedpodcast.com. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Factual McCorney, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Rich Truffolino, and Josh Durham. Thanks for listening.